Thank you to everyone who participated today. Thank you, Brother Cooper, for your testimony. Very difficult to do that. And our prayers are with you as you go through your own recovery and processing the terrible events that transpired about a week ago. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It was still early morning, but the heat was almost unbearable. As were so many days in the extreme southern part of what we know today as Saudi Arabia. And this is definitely not any time to be doing any kind of traveling whatsoever. But when the monarch of your country tells you to saddle up and go, you go. For just a moment, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that you're there. Imagine it's 3,000 years ago and that you are an aide to the queen. And as you look over the caravan getting ready to depart, you notice something quite extraordinary. The queen herself is going to make this journey as well. Now there must be something extremely vital going on for a monarch to leave her throne unattended. Mind you, in those days, for a monarch to leave their kingdom without a chief executive in place would give any possible usurper the opportunity to mount an insurrection and take over the kingdom for himself. So the question arises, why? Why would she take such a risk as this? Just then you look over by the palace and you see the royal guards and they're carrying these bronze chests. And you know what's in those chests. A huge portion of the queen's wealth. And you also know that the desert can be an extremely dangerous place. I mean, reports come in all the time of how these roving bands of thugs and bandits go out and prey on people walking through the desert. And you ask why? Why are we going to expose ourselves to all this danger and even possibly death? You ask the captain of the guard, where is this caravan going? And he tells you, it's going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem? That's over 1,500 miles away. Why in the world are we going all the way to Jerusalem? And so as the caravan sets out, with the blazing sun overhead and the burning sand underneath their feet, you look out toward the horizon and you see the utter desolation and loneliness of the desert. And you ask why. You have a lot of time to think about this because it's going to take you about 75 days of walking in the desert to make it to Jerusalem. And as the days stretch into weeks and the weeks into months, the question arises over and over again, why? Why are we going to Jerusalem? Now, my dear friends, many years before this incident occurred, a young king asked the great God of the universe a small favor. Now, mind you, God told this young king that he could have anything that his young heart desired. So the king asked for the most precious of all gifts. 
And that was wisdom. Wisdom to rule his kingdom with justice and mercy. And this pleased the God of the universe so much that he made Solomon the wisest of all men who have ever lived, and by the way, the wealthiest that ever lived as well. Please take your Bibles with me, dear ones. And let's go to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be moving back and forth through this book, so keep your finger there. 1 Kings chapter 1. And I'll begin reading at verse, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 3. And I'll begin reading at verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long long life. How wise was Solomon, my dear friends? We are told that he had a breadth and depth of mind like the sand on the seashore. 1 Kings tells us that he knew everything concerning biology, zoology, all the natural sciences, ethics, government, and of course, theology. Follow along with me, please, as I read from chapter 4 of 1 Kings. I'll begin at verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Hyman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon 
to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. I don't know, but to describe Solomon's wisdom today, my dear friends, I'd say he had a PhD in everything you could possibly study. Solomon was the most sought-after man of his day. The hot desert sun is taking its toll on our caravan headed to Jerusalem. The journey is taking even longer than was once planned. More time is needed to rest the, cannibal, the camels. Even in this harsh environment, these beasts of burden have a limit to their endurance as well. There's grumbling going on among these worried travelers. And the queen is not insensitive to their discomforts. But she must move on. She is a woman on a mission. Could it be? That she remembers all too well those sleepless nights. The endless hours of tossing and turning. She remembers the long days and nights of gnawing uncertainty. She remembers those wasted waking hours when her mind was as turbulent and unsettled as a stormy sea. Oh, she remembers the endless parade of astrologers, seers, and soothsayers into her palace. She remembers all too well those troubling, disturbing, and haunting questions. Those questions that no one can seem to answer for her. One day in deep despair and discouragement, word is brought to the queen that there is a man. A man reported to be the wisest in all the world. A man who far excels all others in knowledge and wisdom. Really, she asked, where, where is the man? Bring him to me. And her reply comes, well, I'm sorry, your highness. He can't come to you. You see, he is the king of Jerusalem. And he's very powerful. And he's very wealthy. And he is a man of God. A man of God? And with a faint flicker of hope, she decides to seek out this king of Jerusalem Chapter 10 of 1 Kings identifies this queen for us. Turn with me, please, to chapter 10 of 1 Kings, and I'll begin with verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. And now we know why the queen will risk her throne, her wealth, and yes, maybe even her own life. She's going to risk everything to find wisdom, to seek answers, to seek explanations for everything that's within her heart. 
She is bound and determined to get answers to those nagging questions. She asks herself, could this, could this one man be the one that I've really wanted to meet? She has spoken to so many wise men before that she's become a great skeptic in her life. But still, the inner urge to know the truth burns within her heart. Part of her desperately wants to believe it, but the other part tells her just to forget it. Why travel all that way and go through all that trouble just to be disappointed once again? This story about the king of Jerusalem, one man, all that wisdom, it's just an exaggeration. Word comes to Solomon that the queen of Sheba is nearing the city. Now this doesn't come as a surprise to this great king. He's used to entertaining important dignitaries. Do you remember, my dear friends, when Solomon was first crowned king? One of the first projects he undertook was to do what? Build the temple, yes. And boy, did he ever build a temple. In all the world, there was not another structure equaling the innate ornate beauty, splendor, and magnificence of the Temple of Jerusalem. And did you know it took seven and a half years to build? The outer walls were made of the finest stones. The entire interior, imagine this for a moment, is made out of cedar. It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The most holy place was constructed out of pure gold. Oh, did you know that Brother Solomon, King Solomon, had a special dedicatory prayer for that temple? The most striking feature about his prayer was not for God's protection over the children of Israel, but rather that the temple would be used as a means of drawing, drawing all true seekers to the Lord. Let's take a look at that prayer, would you? It's found in chapter 8, chapter 8 of 1 Kings. And I'll begin reading in verse 41. First Kings chapter 8, and it says this, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Here we have before us what I believe is one of the main reasons why God wanted a temple built in Jerusalem. Yes, of course, God wanted to dwell amongst his people. We all know that. But the other reason was to draw all true seekers to himself. We got a word for that, dear ones. It's called evangelism. By this time, the queen has entered the city and she now is ushered into the presence of Solomon. The seeker 
finally meets the sought after. She has traveled a long way, 1,500 miles to meet this wise man. And I'm sure that when she met Solomon, her anticipation to question him almost was unbearable. Now to be sure, to be sure, she came prepared. Prepared to test Solomon's wisdom with questions that she already knew the answer to. Riddles. We've all done those. Riddles were used back then to test one's reasoning power as they are sometimes used today. No doubt the queen fired off some riddles to test Solomon's mastery of logic. I once read a story about a young man in Africa, and I can't remember what country he was in, but it was around the early 1800s. And ascension to the throne in this particular country was not accomplished through bloodlines, but by merit. You had to prove yourself that you're worthy to sit on the throne. And among the many tests the candidate would have to face was to see how well he could handle hardship and deprivation. But what I found most interesting, most interesting indeed, were the questions that were required of the candidate to answer in order to ascend to the throne. The candidates would have no idea what they were going to be asked. The wise men of the village would gather around and they would quiz this young man. Well, one question that was put to this young man many decades ago, a century ago, was the following. Let's see how well you do, my dear ones. The question is this. After a journey of a thousand miles to engage in combat with your mortal enemy, what would be the one thing that you would have made sure of? Straightforward. Simple, right? And I know what you're thinking. You're probably pondering things like, well, make sure I have enough water, enough food, enough weapons, enough camels, enough horses, on and on and on. All those answers are wrong. It's wrong. According to the wise men of the village, the one thing you should make sure of is that you were not the one to travel a thousand miles. I guess we call that today thinking outside the box or something like that. Could it be that the Queen of Sheba really wanted to know is there real, any real meaning to life? Is there a purpose for my existence? Is there really a God up there and does He care about me? Whatever questions she had, she had them all answered. Now, can't we relate to this queen for just a moment? Do we have tough questions that seem unanswerable? You had a testimony here not too long ago from Brother Cooper. Why, Lord? Why am I still here? In my year in Iraq, dear ones, and we were in some of the most God-forsaken territory in Iraq, and I counseled with many men who were in combat, who were survivors of combat, the one question that always came up to me was, Chaplain, why am I here and my friends aren't here? Overwhelming. That question was asked many, many times. I didn't know if I had a good response, but my response was, 
I said, soldier, you did what you had to do. You went into combat, fighting for a noble cause. You went into combat, fighting to defend your friends left and right. Change it for just a moment. If your friend had survived, what would he be saying right now in your place? Probably the same thing, asking that question, why? Dear ones, I don't, I mean, who, who doesn't have why questions? Who hasn't had trauma in their life? Who hasn't suffered injury or illness or known of someone who has? How many people go home, maybe even from our church today, and sit around an empty table because the loved one is no longer with us? We all have those nagging questions. And so did this queen. I ask you to turn with me once again to the 10th chapter of the first book of Kings. And I want to finish the story with you of Solomon's encounter with the queen of Sheba. 1 Kings chapter 10, and I'll begin reading at verse 4. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made of the temple of the Lord, she was, and Scripture says, overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of, Jerusalem, of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantity of spices, and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those that the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Was she a convert? You see, it was God who all along heard the cries of this desperate queen. It was God who directed this queen to go all the way 1,500 miles to see Solomon. It was God who revealed to Solomon the answers to the queen's perplexing questions. Follow me. This queen was a seeker. 
after truth. She wanted to know about God. No doubt she was taken on a tour of the great city. And when they reached the temple steps, she could see that this building was vastly superior, vastly superior to everything else in the city. Could it be that she turned to Solomon and asked, is this where the great God of the universe dwells? And I believe in my sanctified imagination that Solomon gave her a Bible study on the creator of all things. I believe he did that. We have two Bible workers here. And they love to tell everybody about the creator of the universe. No doubt he told her about the meaning of this sanctuary and what its services provided. And having the wisdom given by God, I believe he told her about the great deliverer which would one day come and free all people from their sins. The seeker found truth. She found God. What about you? Have you found God? I would venture to guess that everybody in this room is a professed Christian. You know that the Adventist church has been given a tremendous amount of light on the character of God. We have been exposed to tremendous truths from the Word of God. And we have been given special instructions to see us safely through the perils that await us as we encounter Earth's closing moments. In a way, in a way, I would loosely associate us as pale reflections of the wisdom that Solomon had. We are told is that we enter the close of time and we see things unfolding that just boggle mind. We're told that many people will flock to this church seeking truth. But dear ones, there's a danger in being a Solomon. Someone with all the wisdom and all the truth and all the knowledge. You see, he was self-satisfied. He was self-satisfied being the one sought after. He ceased being a seeker and this led to his downfall. We know the tragic story of Solomon's fall from grace and how, in fact, he almost lost his own soul. He thought his wisdom could keep him secure from temptation. We're told in Scripture that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I remember reading a story about a little boy in Sunday school who was asked about this. He says, yes, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. That's quite a difference. <laughs> Would you turn to be pleased to 1 Kings chapter 11? 1 Kings chapter 11, I'll begin reading at verse 1. King Solomon forever, excuse me, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites. Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, 
Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Terrible. The Lord appeared to him twice, and still he walked away? Well, let me ask you this question, dear ones. Do we think that just because we have more light than others, that that is going to ensure our salvation? Is our wisdom going to keep us from falling? You see, the problem isn't so much with becoming a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. The problem is staying a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. The challenge that you and I face every day is to stay wedded to Jesus and reject the other idols that are out there. We need to maintain our innocence as a seeker always, and I believe that this will guarantee our closeness to Christ. We must always have a beginner's mind. Now, what do I mean by that? Do you remember how hungry you were when you first started studying this message? Do you remember the thrill as you the thrill you had as you were being exposed to the gems of truth from God's sacred book? Do you remember that? Do you remember the joy and the peace you experienced as the great God of the universe opened up your understanding to his word? Dear ones, having the zeal and the drive of a queen of Sheba is our only safeguard from falling away. This is the purpose of the story. This is why it's in our Bibles. Jesus gave a warning to those who felt that they were so self-satisfied with the status that they had achieved, and he warned them about what they were getting themselves into. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12. Well, let me read this. We're running short of time. He said in Matthew 12 of our sermon text this morning, he says this, This queen, the queen of the south, will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom. And those who were standing there were rejecting one greater than Solomon. They stopped being seekers. And I wonder, Will the Queen of Sheba 
rise up in judgment against this generation during the millennium against this generation and all generations who turn their back on the truth. I didn't want to hear the truth. Or what about those who heard the truth but rejected it? Or what about those who remain lukewarm to the truth? Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that before he returns, the love of many is going to grow cold. The context is their love for Christ is going to grow cold. Are we so self-satisfied that we close our eyes to the one greater than Solomon? Can we see past our own acquired wisdom and cling to Christ as we first did when we were converted? Is he still, my dear friends, the answer to our most profound questions of life and death? Is he our reason for living? Is he still the only way, the truth, and the life? Beloved, if he is not, or if you have grown cold, I pray that you will do the first fruits of conversion, and that is repent of your waywardness, claim the merits of Jesus as your only hope of salvation, and cling to the cross of Christ with all of your heart. What is your goal? To be a seeker or to be the one sought after? Friend, I pray that you and I will never cease being a seeker after Christ. Let every day begin with an intense desire to know Him better. There is an old proverb I once heard that said this, a truly wise person will always seek the face of God. Let's be wise, dear friends, and seek the Lord moment by moment. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.